The following audio has been brought to you by Word of Grace Community Church. For more information about Word of Grace, visit wogcc.com. Today we're talking about dad glasses. Um, when you become a dad, and especially the day I found out, I, I told this last year, the story of, of the day that, that my wife told me we were going to be uh, parents, and the moment that that light bulb clicked in my head, once I got the setup that she had delivered to me, which I was really thick skulled, um, but finally I realized, oh, the bun in the oven, oh, I get it. Um, the moment, it was like, oh, bun in the oven, like you can't believe, unless you're a parent already, how much in a second your view of the world can change. When you go from not being a dad or a mom to being an expectant parent, and then even more so the moment that your child is born and you see them, lay eyes on them for the first time and all their goopy, nasty, cone-headed mess, like how much your perspective changes. And I put on dad glasses um, last year when my wife told me we were pregnant and then I refreshed those dad glasses the moment my daughter was born. It changes you so much for the good. Um, the way you see other people, the way you see other people's kids. Like beforehand, if I would have seen like an adorable little girl or something like that, and I'd be like, oh, she's so cute. Someone could be like, okay, you creep, get out of here. Now it's like, I've got my own. And so it's almost permissible to acknowledge the adorableness of other people's kids and not be creepy. Uh, like many, you, you learn a lot. I mean, a lot. You learn a lot of things from your kids. Like for instance, I know I have learned from my daughter that, um, you know, you don't need as much sleep as you thought you used to need. <laughs> like I used to think, you know, I need like a good, I don't know, six, seven, eight hours-ish, somewhere in there every night. And I need uh, to either sleep in one day or get a nap one day a week. And now it's like, I just need to sleep through the night. That's all. And even then, you don't get that. And so it's just like, actually, I guess I still don't even need as much sleep as I thought because I'm still functioning. I'm somehow able to plow through the day, keep on going. Like the first two months in particular of being a parent, you could be on The Walking Dead because you're just like, I mean, you're almost useless. But the level of exhaustion is just, if you're not a parent yet, get ready. Buckle up. I know a couple of you. I've seen... Some of you, not parents yet, that's a new level of exhaustion. But it's worth it. It's awesome. And so you learn that you don't need as much sleep as you thought, but you still need sleep. Uh, you learn, here's the fun one, you learn that uh, poop and pee and throw up are not as gross as you thought, or at least that's what you have to tell yourself because you are inundated with them on a regular basis. Funny story, you'll enjoy this, I think. About a month ago, um, so every morning, every morning, weekday mornings, like work days, my wife leaves the house at like 5.20 to 5.30-ish in the mornings to go to work, and then Marley wakes up at like 6.30 to 7-ish every morning on days that God is really blessing me, and she'll sleep like later than that. But So I'm the one who, who gets up, gets Marley ready every morning. I get her dressed, and um, except on weekends like Sunday, I have to be here earlier than Katie, and so she'll do that. But so weekdays, I get up with her, I, I get her dressed, I get her ready to change her through the night, find, I get to find all sorts of wonderful blessings, presents she has for me, 
um, when I get her out of the bed, I get to feed her and all that kind of stuff. Well, depending on how things roll out with her in the morning, that kind of determines the order of events in the morning. It's not like every single morning she wakes up at 6.30, change a diaper, make her bottle, feed her, uh, change her outfit. It's like some days it's kind of clockwork, but then if she wakes up later one day or wakes up earlier one day, or like this day that I'm telling this story about, it was a Monday about a month ago, that she woke up and uh, she had a present for me, okay? And uh, I changed her diaper, took care of it, and then we had our bottle, and then we continued to get ready. And it was about time to put her in her carrier, load her up in the car, go take her to grandma's, and I go to work. And what do you know, I'm about to load her up, and this wonderful aroma crosses my nose once again. And I'm thinking, twice in one morning, all right. So that delays us a little bit. I'm running behind a little bit. I change her. She thinks that the changing table is playtime, so it's harder to change her than it used to be. It's like, ha, 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 try and change my diaper. And so I change the second round of number two. Num number two, number two. Yeah, okay. And in the process, parents, you've been here. You know, sometimes stuff gets on, on you, okay? And... And so I, I uh, normally after I change her, I'd go wash my hands or at the very least hit some hand sanitizer real quick. But I was behind, I was running late, changing her really quick. And so that slipped my mind. We get in the car, drop her off at grandma's. I drive into Sheboygan Falls. Uh, we live in Keel. Drive into Falls, get to the church. It's Monday. We have staff meeting. We're all sitting around the table. We're talking about all the church's issues. Just kidding. We're talking about the church, stuff that's going on, planning things. And we're sitting there around the table, and, and I'm thinking, and I'm in deep thought, you know, about how to fix the world. And then I go like this. Oh, that's a little bit of poop. I had poo on my fingers. I had to graciously excuse myself from the staff meeting um, <clears throat> to go get the poop off my fingers and my face. <laughs> gross, I know, but you learn it's not that gross because of how much you have to deal with it. You try your best to keep your fingers out and stuff like that, but sometimes, you know, like, especially when you got blowouts and stuff, sometimes it happens. It gets on you. And that's just that substance. That's not to mention the frequent spit up. Like, my wardrobe is just spit up now, I think. And uh, th th that's not to mention pee and drool and all that other kind of stuff. The things that before you have a child, you're like, oh, gross. Like if you had poop on your fingers before you had a child, you're like, that's disgusting, it's nasty. And it is. But then you have a child, you get your dad glasses, and you realize, ah, it's just poop. And so when you become a parent, you get new glasses or a new outlook on life, and it totally changes the way that you see life, the way you see people, the way you see world issues, the way you see money and finances, the way you see all sorts of stuff. And the awesome thing is in the scripture, we see over and over and over and over and over again, like we just sang, that God is a good, good father, that God is our father. Not so much in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God is referred to as father about 15 times. And that may sound like a lot, but considering the volume of the Old Testament, it's not a lot. 
And those times, those 15 times, he's called father, particularly like the father of the nation of Israel, and or he's called the father of a few specific uh, Bible characters, like heroes of the faith. But then you jump to the New Testament, and Jesus comes on the scene, and in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus refers to God as Father over 165 times. Jesus comes on the scene and opens up the curtain, or lets us in to realize who God really is. Because before this, if you just knew Old Testament God, you think of God as, um, as like judge, ruler, guy who's sitting up in heaven on the throne with a big white beard and the lightning bolts ready for you to mess up. Or the God who is the God up in heaven and we're down here on earth, or the God, if Old Testament, the God up on the mountain with Moses and we're down here in the encampment, or the God in the tabernacle that we're not allowed to go into, Jesus shows up and introduces us to God, our Father. He teaches disciples. They ask Jesus, how should we pray? And he says, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And he refers to him over and over in prayer and in conversation with people. He calls God Father. And then this translates on into the early church after Jesus has ascended into heaven and the apostles are beginning the church in the first century. They use the same language that Jesus gave to them, referring to Jesus as Father. Paul calls God Abba, Father. He says, we've received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry out, Abba Father, and that's Greek wording that essentially means Daddy God. It means Dad, so it's not even just like Father. Like if my dad, who was here a few weeks ago visiting, if he walked up to me in the airport and I was like, Hello, Father, he's gonna be like, What? Is that a joke? <laughs> what do you mean? No, I call my father Dad. And so this term of God being our Father is no longer the God up in heaven or on the mountain or in the tabernacle that's untouchable, unreachable, without someone being the mediator. This is now God, our Father, intimate, personal, relatable, our Daddy God. And I grew up my whole life knowing that. I grew up my whole life knowing God is our Father. I'm a pastor's kid, so I've heard more sermons than all of you, okay? And I've read the Bible through many times and blah, 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 all the stuff that can sound like bragging, whatever. I've heard plenty about God being our father, but guess what? The day I became a dad, I got to see God differently. I feel like I get God better than I did before. I knew he loved me. I knew he sent his son to die for me, which is a whole other thing because I've got a daughter and the thought of sacrificing her for people who have rebelled against me. So, so when I consider the relationship I have with my daughter, the love I have for her, the joy I take in her, and I then consider that God is my father, it just changes it all. So I have today eight points. I know that's more than usual. I'm going to try and kind of go through them fast. Eight things my daughter has taught me about God. It's very, very common now, very frequent, frequent, <laughs> very frequent that something happens, or I'm telling my daughter something, even though she's not understanding English yet, that something's happening, and I'm like, it's almost like God goes, get it? And so we're going to cover some of that today, 
Number one, I love her more than she can know or understand. I love her more than she could ever know or understand. I, she doesn't know the word love yet. In fact, the depths of her uh, vocabulary is pretty much... She's not piecing words together yet, hasn't learned them. She's working on her consonants, a lot of fun. But she can't talk yet. She doesn't understand cognitively what love is. Yet, I believe in our interactions and in the way she interacts with me, that she, at least in her heart, even though she may not know it's love, she knows I love her, I am loving to her, and that she loves me. She may not be able to understand those terms, understand those feelings, but I believe she has those feelings. But she can't know or understand how much I love her. She can't. Um, let's flip the coin. We know God loves us, right? We can read it in the Bible. We can sing about it. We just did. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. I'm loved by you. It's who I am. But we cannot know or understand how much God loves us. We can't know or understand how much. We get a picture. We get somewhat of an idea. Even in Scripture, it explains it. Like in Romans chapter 5, it says some people, not very commonly, but someone might be willing to lay their life down for someone else. Paul goes on to say, and a few more people might be willing to lay down their life for someone who's a good person, but even still, it's very rare. He says, but God shows us how much he loves us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that while we were still enemies with God, while we were rebellious, while we had done nothing right, God sent his son to die for us. That is an open display of the greatest love of all time. Jesus himself said, no greater love has a man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus, the God-man, defines love, the greatest love, by saying there is not a greater love than someone who lays down his life for a friend, and then he backs it up and shows us that kind of love. Now, we can see God's love for us. We can get that God loves us to levels and degrees, but we will never, on this side of eternity, understand how much God loves us. Now, let's go to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, but it's also writing to the church in Sheboygan Falls. This pertains to us too. This is a prayer that he's praying for them, and I had uh, starting in verse 19, but we're actually going to start in verse 14. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, for whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Here we go. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The Apostle Paul is praying for the church. He's praying for us that, that we could know the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of God's love, the vast love that God has for us, that he says, 
passes knowledge. This love you can't know, but I'm praying that you can know it. And the way that that works is just like before I became a dad, I had mental assent of God's love as a father. Now I am an experienced father in all of my six and a half months of it. And I have understood new levels of what it means to have a father's love. Paul says, I'm praying that you could understand, that you could comprehend what cannot be known, which is the love of Christ. It is a love that even though our finite minds cannot understand it, our brains cannot comprehend how great God's love is for us. It's something that at the same time, like I believe with my daughter in our heart, and that's what he's talking about, we can know. Your brain can't know how much God loves you, but your heart can believe it and receive it. That's how the knowing happens. That we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And then he says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. See, our being filled with the fullness of God is related to our seeing, believing, and receiving God's love for us. The Father's love that is greater than our comprehension greater than our understanding. There are not enough words in English. There are not enough words in any language altogether in the whole world to explain the love of God. The great thing, though, is that he didn't go to the great depths to explain it. He showed it. He showed us his love. That video we just saw, I, I love it because it reminds us of the truth that, it, 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 yes, words are powerful, and teaching intentionally is powerful, but nothing, we all know the phrase, what speaks louder than words? Actions speak louder than words. If you're ever wondering, does God love you? Does God care about you? All you have to do is look at the cross. God showed you by action how much he loves you. My daughter cannot understand how much I love her. We cannot understand how much God loves us. Two, firstly, I love her more than she can know and understand. Number two, I do more for her than she can know or understand. So right now, she knows I do things for her. I know this because she cries. So when she is hungry, she does not begin to try and figure out how to feed herself. She cries. Why? Because she can't feed herself, and she knows that I can. So I'm the guy to her that gives her bottles and cleans her bottom, and entertains her. Those are things that she knows I do for her, even though she might not know food bottle, she might not know diaper, she does, she's not cognizant of those realities. She does know hungry, and he's the guy who makes me not hungry. He's the guy who gives me that magical bottle thingy. She doesn't know I have a dirty diaper, she just knows something's not comfortable, this is unpleasant and he fixes it. She might not know uh, what she wants to do, but she does know she's bored, and that guy can make me not bored. He can move me to this toy or make that dumb face and sound that I enjoy. And so she does know some things I do for her. But does she know that when I hear her wake up in the morning, I'm going first thing to the kitchen to begin to make her bottle so that after I get her up out of her crib and change her, her bottle's ready so I can take her straight to her bottle and feed her right away so that there's not that delay there. She has no idea that I'm measuring 
that I'm sealing, that I'm shaking and mixing. She has no idea that I'm preparing her gas drops. She has no idea that I'm getting her nook ready to follow it up with. She has no idea that I'm getting the spit rag ready because I know her, her potential um, for spitting up after she eats. She has no idea all those things I'm doing for her. She knows I'm going to bring her bottle. She knows I'm going to change her, but that's it. And a lot of times in our lives, we're sitting there like my daughter in the crib going, ah, ah, saying what we want and the things that, that we think we need and, and maybe even do need, and we have no idea the things that God is actively doing for us at the moment that we can't tell. God is frequently, constantly, nonstop working on your behalf. In fact, the scripture tells us in Hebrews that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for the saints. What does that mean? That means nonstop, Jesus is praying for you right now. You ever wonder, does God care about me? Is God doing anything for me? I'm sitting here in this situation and I don't see an end in sight. I don't see the results that I'm looking for. I don't see the answer to the prayer that I'm asking for. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is praying for you nonstop to the Father. That's something he's actively doing all the time. Romans 8 and 28, a very famous verse, tells us that God is working together all things for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. It didn't say God worked or God will work. It says God is working. That's active. God is working together all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. My daughter is very short-sighted very, I want what I want now, and has no idea all the things that I am constantly and frequently doing for her. As she gets older, she'll learn some more. She'll begin to realize more. But even still, at that point, she probably won't be thinking about how I'm going to work to buy food for her and to pay for a house over her head and clothes on her body and all the different things. She'll become more and more aware of things that I'm doing for her, but she still will not know all that I'm doing for her. And we can have gratitude in our hearts for the things that God is doing for us that we see and that we know about, but true maturity is found in thanking God for the things that we don't know about because he is doing so much more for us that we don't see than what we do see. God is doing more for us than we can know or understand. That same passage, Ephesians chapter 3, there's another verse that follows it right away. Verses 20 through 21 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think. That's another way we know God's doing more because we can't even think of the things that he's doing. Abundantly more than we can ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Number three. Even when she thinks I have completely abandoned her, which her actions have implied that she has thought that before. Even when she thinks I have completely abandoned her, I'm actually working on her behalf. So one, there's the idea, there's the truth that she doesn't know all the things I do for her. Secondly, I'm doing things for her when she thinks I've abandoned her. Like whenever I'm making a bottle for her or even have made a bottle for her, 
and I am picking her up from wherever she is, and I am walking over to where we're going to sit down, and I'm going to lay her back and give her the bottle. In that process, she's making sure I know I, I don't, that she doesn't think I'm doing this fast enough. Like, if I set the bottle down and sit down with her to get positioned, the lip is curling and the tears are coming. She gets mad. Full-blown, like, so you know there's a difference. Parents, you get this. There's a difference between, like, I'm sad and frustrated crying and, like, I'm mad crying. And that's when the I'm mad crying comes out. When I have already, like, she can be crying, and I get the bottle, and I start going, and it's amazing. This, like, death cry just goes. And if she sees that bottle, it does not matter where I go or what's going on. Her eyes are locked on the prize. She is looking at the bottle until it comes to her mouth. And when you lay her back and you bring the bottle, she is going like, like leaning forward, ready for it. But there are times that I can tell from her crying, she thinks I've abandoned her. For instance, if she's sitting in her little seat thing with her toys and she's playing and she's wanting my attention and she starts, you know, a little crying like, ah, 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 ah. It's not a real cry. It's like, give me attention. And I walk by the room and she sees me. And then I walk past where she can't see me. The ah, ah turns into what I'm not going to do on the microphone. <laughs> to full-blown screaming, tears flowing, full-blown, he has abandoned me crying. Have I abandoned her? No. Will I ever? No. I'm working on her behalf in those moments when she thinks I've abandoned her. Psalm chapter 22. It's a passage where King David, we know, had some pretty dark times in his life. His hero, his role model, was trying to kill him. He was exiled from the nation before he became king. And he writes in Psalms 22 this whole passage of, why have you forsaken me? How long will you forget me? How long will you let my enemies surround me? They've surrounded me like dogs. How long will you forget me, God? And he says things that I'm like, I'm not sure I'd have the courage to say that to God. But I love how honest David was in praying those things. And the other thing I love is that after he vents and says those, how long have you forgotten me? Why have you forsaken me? He then reminds himself of truth and he goes, but my fathers trusted in you and you delivered them. Every time David has one of those moments of going, why have you forsaken me? Where are you, God? Why have you forgotten me? Don't you know what I'm going through? Can't you see the situation I'm in? He vents and then he gets, it's like in the process of venting, he opens himself up to make room for the truth that he knows. And he reminds himself by saying, but my father looked to you. My fathers trusted in God and delivered them. The same thing happens in Psalms 13. He's going, How long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long will you deliver deliver me to my enemies? And then at the very end of the chapter, he says, but I will trust in your unfailing love. There's times in our lives where we're sitting here, like my daughter, going, ah, 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 what's going on, God? Why are you letting this happen? Why have you forgotten me? Do you not see what I'm going through? Or do you not care that I'm going through this pain or this suffering? Do you not want what's best for me, God? And God's sitting here going, yeah, you dummy. I do. 
That's why I'm working on it right now. You just don't know it. And sometimes the hardest thing for us is to learn to be patient and trust God's timing, reminding ourselves that he loves us with perfect love, that he knows everything, including the things we need and the things that are bad for us, and he wants our best, not always our happiness, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. That he wants what's best for us. Which means if we're in a situation and we're sitting here going, God, hello, what's going on? Dad, can't you hear me crying? Then there's a reason it hasn't happened yet and we need to trust the love of our good and perfect father. Even when we feel like God has abandoned us, he's actually working on our behalf. Number four, she doesn't always know what she wants or needs. Sometimes she thinks she does, but a lot of times she doesn't know what she wants or what she needs. Last night, this is fresh, last night, my, my daughter's gotten to this phase now of like she perceives when it's bedtime, so she takes naps throughout the day, but for some reason when it's bedtime, it's like, uh-uh, I'm fighting this, I'm not going to bed. Even though she's like, like tearing her eyes out, rubbing, you know, the sleepy thing the babies do where they're like rubbing their face and all that. Even though she's doing that like nonstop, even though she's doing this thing that she always does when she's tired where she curls her back and like does this and like she's giving all the signs of I'm tired and I need to go to bed. I put her on the changing table and she's like, playtime, like grabbing my hands and all that, trying to tear her diaper back off that I just put on her, all these things She's trying to play. She doesn't want to go to sleep. I give her her bottle. I'm holding her. I'm rocking her and bouncing her and all that stuff. And she's like, <laughs> I don't want to go to sleep. But guess what? Dad knows she needs to go to sleep. So for 30 minutes last night, getting her from playful mood back to what I know she needs, which is rest and sleep. A lot of times, we think we need certain things in life. We think we know what would make us happy, or we think we know the thing that God needs to give us, or what would be the answer to our current situation. And God's going, no, actually, you don't need that, and that's why I'm not going to give it to you. I'm going to give you what you do need. You know, right after that passage in Psalm 22 where King David or not yet King David, but David was saying, Where have you, why have you forgotten me? How long will you forget me? The very next chapter, Psalm 23, is the one that says, Bless the Lord, or, or no, the, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's this just bragging on God. He makes me lie down in green pastures. I love that word. It's not like he provides for me green pastures. He makes me lie down in green pastures. That's not an option. And I think sometimes in life, we're trying so hard to make certain things happen or make certain results come to pass, and God's like, you're going to lay down in green pastures now. I'm not giving you what you want. I'm giving you what you need. And last year, or no, no, I think it was about two years, I taught a message with a little story about how my grandmother makes the most amazing chocolate cake. Nanny Maris makes, it's unreal. And one time when I was like seven years old, I got a slice and because it's so delicious, I wanted more. I asked my mom. She's like, no, you don't need more. Three times back and forth, I was like, please, mom, please, please. And finally, she caved to my charmer. I don't know. She caved, and she said, fine. 
And I go in the kitchen, and Nanny Maris is like, Stephen, what are you doing? And I'm like, Mom said I could get another piece of cake. And she's like, no, your mom told you three times I heard you, you're not getting another piece of cake. And I, like, entered into depression. And I'm sitting here thinking, like, chocolate cake tastes delicious. It is good. You must be bad. <laughs> if you don't let me have what's good, you must be bad. Why don't you want me to have this thing that is good? Well, obviously, I'm a little more mature now than when I was seven. I've learned a thing or two, and I've learned that having a whole bunch of sugar is bad for you. I've learned it can make you sick. I've learned that enough of it can give you diabetes. I've learned all these things that what I thought was good and what I thought I wanted, my parents who are smarter than me and are concerned for my well-being, stopped what I wanted because they knew that what I wanted was destructive, that what I wanted actually was not for my good. 1 John 5, chap, uh, chapter 5, and verse 14 says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Is there anyone other than me in this room right now that can say, thank God that he hasn't given me every prayer that I've asked for? I thank God. Because had he answered all of my prayers, I wouldn't be married to my best friend Katie right now. There was a time in my life where I thought someone else. Hindsight 2020, I look back and I go, thank you, God, for not answering that prayer. Because I got my bestie over there. Thank you, God. I wouldn't have Marley had God answered a prayer from my younger years. There was a time in my life where I was financially struggling, struggling and I was praying, God, send me some miraculous money. Let a check come in the mail or something. Give me some supernatural provision. And I'm praying and I'm asking God for it and he did not answer that prayer. And I can sit here and go, God, I need money. You're good, right? Why don't you give me that money? And God's going, because I want you to learn how to steward your finances, you dumb dumb. I want you to grow and mature. And if I just give you that, you're not going to grow. We ought to be thankful whenever God doesn't answer our prayer. Sometimes it's hard to see. Sometimes we don't ever see why. But we ought to know our good Father knows what's best for us, and He loves us, and He wants our, what's for our well-being. So when He doesn't answer a prayer, we ought to thank God for unanswered prayers. I don't like country music, so if that's totally off of Garth Brooks, sorry. That's, I'm sure I just butchered it. God knows what he's doing. He knows what we want and what we need more than we know what we want or what we need. So the, the, the parallel there is we don't always know what we want or what we need. Number five, I am more concerned with my daughter's well-being than I am with her happiness. Now, I want her to be happy. I love it when my daughter's happy. That smile lights me up in a way that's just unreal. But more than I care about her being happy, I care about her well-being. Now, a lot of these principles are kind of stringing together here that, once again, this comes to if God doesn't answer a prayer or doesn't make a certain situation work out for us, and we have to look at our lives, and there's so many things through Scripture that we can see things that we are called to abstain from, 
things that God has kind of made off limits for us. Sin. God has called us to a life of abstaining from and refusing and resisting temptation and resisting sin. And sometimes we can sit there and look at God like, that looks fun, God. Why don't you want me to do that? You just don't want me to have fun. And Romans chapter 5, verse 11, the Apostle Paul says that sin entered the world and death by sin. See, sin brings destruction and brings death. You can sit here and think, oh, God doesn't want me to have any fun. Why doesn't he want me to do this type of thing? Or why does he tell us that we're not allowed to do that kind of thing? And it's because he's not for you having destruction. God wants what's best for you. And there's a very popular ideology that's especially in America that do whatever makes you happy. Well, whatever makes you happy, that's what you ought to do. Or I just want what makes them happy. And although that's well-intended, it's not the best. Because I don't know about you, but I have wanted things in my life before that were not good for me. And thank God my parents were able to say, no, because that's not good for you. I remember one time my, my, my group of best friends were going to the movie theater one night. They were going to go watch some movie that uh, the scene kind of plays out like, hey, dad, me and so-and-so and so-and-so, we're going to go to the movies, uh, so we'll see you later. Hey, what movie are you going to go watch? Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe we'll see what's there. I knew what movie we were going to watch. I don't know, we're going to see what's there when we get there. And dad's like, well, can't you look on the internet ahead of time to see what's there? Yeah. He's like, well, what movie are you guys going to go see? I'm like, uh, we're going to go see this and such. And he's like, no, you're not going to see that movie. Dad, all of my friends are going to go see this movie. I'm going to be the only one who can't quote it. I'm going to be the only one that when they're talking about, oh, yeah, this happened and that happened, and I'm the one going, hey, yeah, that was, that was awesome. Like, I'm going to look dumb, and I'm going to be the one on the outside. I'm going to be the one who doesn't get it. But I knew my dad was protecting me, or I didn't know at the time. I see now my dad was protecting me from garbage, trash, stuff that was destructive towards me internally. I can now be thankful for that. And God oftentimes is doing the same thing, and that we sometimes would say, God, don't you want me to be happy? Yeah but he cares more about our well-being than our happiness. If they can be married, and very often they can and should be, great. But sometimes God's willing to sacrifice our momentary happiness for our long-term well-being. Amen? Proverbs 14 and 12, I love this, says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. We can all sit here and go, God, this, why not this? Why didn't you open that door? Why wouldn't you give me this? Why wouldn't you let me do that? Aren't you good? Don't you love me? Don't you want what's best for me? And God's going, yeah, that's why I'm not giving it to you. That's why I'm not going to let you partake of that because I don't want destruction in your life. Number six, she often works against me helping her. She often works against what I'm trying to do for her. Once again, we'll return to the changing table scenario. <laughs> Lay down on the changing table. Got to get the clothes off, whatever they may be. Get the diaper off, clean up, diaper back on, clothes back on. What could take 
60 seconds. She's determined to make five minutes, 10 minutes. She's like sitting there and it's like she's got in her mind and she has now this little like <laughs> smile and laugh that she does. It's, I'm pretty sure she knows what she's doing now. To where when I'm changing her and cleaning her, she's like rolling like this, grabbing my arm, like hugging my arm to where I can't move and do because she'd fall off the table. She's like trying to roll and I have to keep her on the table. And she's like grabbing, like I put her foot in the footy thingy. Great terminology, right? Footy thingy. And then she grabs it and pulls her foot back out and puts the footy thingy in her mouth. And like she grabs, I, I fasten the diaper closed. She goes, opens it back up, starts wiggling, kicking, squirming, peeing again. All this stuff that it's like, and the, the funniest part here is that oftentimes it's when she's hungry and she's like, I want to eat, crying, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, if you could just cooperate, you can get what you need sooner. One more time where God's like, hey, that's a good principle, isn't it? <laughs> Same for you. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Very often in life, we're doing things that are contrary to what God is trying to do in us. Hebrews tells us that we are to set aside every weight and every sin that so easily besets us or hinders us. Let us run our race with endurance, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And so we've got in our lives things that we really need to evaluate and go, am I, is this thing or this relationship or this situation helping me or helping the work that God's doing in me, or is it fighting against what God's trying to do in me? So like, I, I, I just got to use this example. There's people who have like huge fear problems. I'm not one, I don't really wrestle with fear. I think I did when I was younger, but not anymore. There are people who have major fear problems, like fear of being alone, fear of being in the dark or whatever. And those people go and watch these terrifying horror movies. And I'm just like, you know, God has not given us a spirit of fear doesn't mean you can't give one to yourself. So I, I'm not sitting up here bashing any, that necessarily. I'm just saying think about what you're doing if it's working with what God's trying to do in you or if it's working against what God's trying to do with you. Because a lot of times if we step back and we evaluate ourselves and if we're honest, a lot of times we're doing things that are not helping our growth and our maturation in Christ. The same way that my daughter's like, <laughs> we can sit there and cling so tightly to things in our lives that God's saying, if you would just let that go, I'm going to get you where you need to be. If you would just let go of that situation or that thing or that toxic relationship or that bad habit, if you would let those things go and set them down, I'm going to do great work in you that's going to blow you away. The question is, are we willing to let go? Stop tearing the diaper back off. Number seven, these last two are really good, I'm telling you. I take great joy in her growth. It's like she's at the age and point now where it's like every single week she's figured out something new, like a new sound to make or a new thing that she likes to do or, you know, now she's not only seeing things, she's reaching for things and grabbing things. And then it's like, oh, snap, she's not just reaching for things. Now she's bringing everything to her mouth, which makes <laughs> you got to pay a little closer attention. And so every single new little thing, they're so small. They're so insignificant. But every tiny little thing that shows growth just gives me so much joy. 
And God is sitting there the same way when, when you're like, you grow beyond certain bad habits or when you have grown beyond certain temptations or when you set certain um, areas of your life down or you more easily trust God or you more easily volunteer to serve or all these different things that show maturation, God's going, mm, yeah. I want to remind you, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the perfect day. That's a reminder that God's the one who's working in you. In Ephesians, it tells us that God is working in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. That means when you want to do and when you actually do what God wants you to do, it's because he's working in you, okay? God is the one who is working in you. So when we're growing and we're maturing, it's giving glory and honor to God because of the work that his Holy Spirit is doing in us. God takes joy in our growth because it brings honor and glory to him. We're not called to just become Christians and that's it. Because if that was it, if it was just about becoming a Christian, when you became a Christian, you'd be gone. You'd, you'd go to heaven like right away. But God has called us to grow and mature and show and spread his love in this world. Finally, number eight, this is the best one. My greatest joy is when she finds joy in me. So like, her smile is amazing. Full gums and everything. No teeth yet. But it's one thing to see her joy and I take joy in her joy. But there's another thing. When I go to pick her up from grandma's house and she, I walk around the corner and she's over there in her little seat or whatever she's doing and she looks across the room and makes eye contact with me and this happens. When she sees me and smile, oh, there it goes. When she sees me and takes joy in me, all you parents know, it's the best. It's the best. Another thing just like it that is when able, whenever I'm able to make that dumb face or make that dumb sound or whatever it is, and she goes, <laughs> and she laughs because I did something. When she takes joy in me, man, that's the best. And did you know God wired us the same way? God delights in our joy, but more so when we take joy in him. See, that's the reason we're alive, to bring glory to God and enjoy him. The famous preacher, uh, John Piper, has his like tagline, the most famous thing he says, the thing he's known for is, is saying, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Not that we need satisfaction and money or fame or power or achievement or whatever different things we think give us satisfaction when we realize those are all pacifiers, nooks. He's the satisfier. When we are satisfied in Jesus, that's when he gets the most glory because we are recognizing he is the fulfiller of who we are. And when we recognize that our joy is greatest in Christ, Man, it brings him great, great joy, great, great pleasure, great glory, and great honor. I'm going to read a verse really quickly as I'm wrapping up that, um, that at first is going to be like, how does this relate to that? But I'll show you. Philippians chapter 1, verse 20 through 21 says, 
and this is Paul speaking, he says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with the full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul says, for me to live like us right now, live here is Christ. We are living in Christ. And then he says, to die is gain, mean, meaning better than this. Now, how can he say that? Because in another passage, he says, he's talking about and he's explaining how he's wrestling between these two ideas. One being staying here in this world and helping flourish the church, helping raise disciples, helping introduce people to Christ, that he loves doing that, but he really more so than that wants to die so he can go be with Christ. It's when he's older, he's up in years, he's done a great work, and he's explaining to the church, guys, listen, I'm really wrestling between these two things. Part of me wants to stay here to keep helping you all grow in Christ, but really more so, I want to get out of here so that I can be with Christ. I've said it before, I'll say it again. The goal of heaven is not the pearly gates or the streets of gold or all the wonderful things we can think of about heaven. The thing that's going to make heaven so awesome and so amazing is that for eternity we get to be face to face with God. When you get to heaven, you're not going to give a rip about streets of gold and pearly gates. God, in the fullness of his glory, is going to be there to you face to face. All you're going to be able to do, all you're going to want to do, all you're going to be interested in doing is falling on your face and saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, to us right now, that's like, that doesn't really sound that fun. But I remember when I was a kid and I looked at things that my parents did and go, that does not look fun. But now I'm like, this is so fun. When we're there, you're not going to care about anything else. When you see Jesus face to face, and you are able to fully enjoy him. And now we take joy in him now. He's given us his spirit now. We can delight in him now. But when we're there, that's why Paul could say, I'm really, really torn between these two ideas, guys. And he said, I'm going to stay. I'm going to continue to serve as long as the Lord has me here. But in my heart, I want to go be with him. His joy was rooted in Christ. Not in having the perfect life, not in having the American dream, not in having God answer all of his prayers and make everything happen the way he thought it should. His joy was rooted in knowing Christ. In the same way that I take the greatest joy in my daughter finding joy in me, God is thrilled when we discover how amazing, how awesome, how wonderful, how magnificent, how beautiful he is to where we find joy in him. That's ultimate. That's why we're alive. That's what we're going to do for eternity. God, help us to see that now. Help us to have that sight now. So what do we do with this? That's a whole bunch of stuff. It's like, Pastor Stephen, those are good lessons. What do we do? The challenge is to remind ourselves of these truths. Because when we remind ourselves of these truths and we see them, it stirs and awakens 
authentic gratitude in our life. And that gratitude overflows into actions that bring honor and glory to the Father. See, when you have full-blown authentic gratitude, you act on it. When you are really, really grateful for something, you don't just say thank you, you show thank you. You, you act in a way that shows how grateful you are. And I've got to tell one last story. My 16th birthday, 16 years ago now, 16th birthday, this is a story I am terribly ashamed of. I'm so embarrassed by this story, I'm ashamed of it. My 16th birthday, I, I grew up in a great home, wonderful family, awesome parents, two older brothers, had four sisters that we adopted from Romania, great family. And uh, my older brothers, my oldest brother Michael, when he turned 16, my parents bought him an old clunker Ford Taurus. Like barely ran, but it rained, and that's all you care about when you're 16. And my next oldest brother, middle brother, Jeremy, he turned 16, and he got an old hoopty Nissan Sentra. Once again, it, it ran. And so when my time was coming up to turn 16, I'm sitting here going, all right, I get to drive soon. I'm going to get my own car. And I'll remind you that throughout this timeline, we had adopted the four girls, and the finances were tighter than they used to be because adoption is not cheap, especially international adoption. And so money wasn't what it was at one point. My birthday comes up, and I vividly remember this scene of sitting in the kitchen, sitting at the table. My parents had a cake with the candles, and we blew it out, and we ate cake, and they had a few gifts for me, and I opened the gifts, and it was like a new pair of jeans and a new nice shirt that I liked, and I think they got me a CD from my favorite band at the time. And with each of those gifts, I went, oh, thanks. Right? That thank you, that, oh, thanks. And I was thankful, but not fully thankful. And then I had opened all the gifts, and everyone were all just sitting around, and my mom says, so, how's it feel? 16, how are you doing? And like a spoiled, selfish, entitled, shameful son, I said, great, where's my car? What a brat. What an ungrateful brat. I've since apologized a few years later when I looked back at that moment, just the shame of the ungratefulness in my heart of seeing what my parents had done for others, feeling I deserved. It's my turn. And then I did get immediately what I thought I should get and expressed it. And, and it just made me think that I think a lot of times our thanks to God is the thanks for those, the way that I thanks for those other things. Like, thanks God for this, thanks for that. Is it true, deep, heartfelt gratitude to our Father? Like, we just saying, you're a good, good Father. It's who you are. It's who you are. I'm loved by you. It's who I am. And were we in that moment, guys, were we in our hearts going, you're a good Father. And when we sing praise to God, are we in our hearts like, you really are. Like, are we letting our hearts get to the, that deep level of gratitude and appreciation that overflows to action? Or are we being like the little brat that I was on, our, on my 16th birthday who goes, thank you, Lord. 
thanks for all the stuff that I already have. Thanks for this and thanks for that. And you're a good, good father. I guess you're good enough that I can come to church and sing to you. Or do we really remind ourselves of the true depths of love that Paul prayed we would know in Ephesians, that we would know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge? That changes us and transforms us. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Word of Grace. For more sermons or any other information, visit wogcc.com.